Well, today I want to talk to you about the question that's before us, but before I do, I don't want to tell you what the question is just yet, because there's probably, as I thought about, what's the question in your life? If you could ask God one question, what would that question be? And I have lots of them that I jotted down. If I could ask this one question, what would that question be? Sometimes it has to do with my kids you know, when they were growing up. What will they be when they grow up? Because raising them was always like unwrapping, you know, a gift. Every layer of paper just reveals something new and something different. But I want to talk to you about the question that's facing us as a nation this morning. And before I do, what I'd like you to just remember, this is not a political message. I'm neither Democrat nor Republican. So... I'm not preaching this as a political message. And for those of you that are online audience, we have a number of people that watch from other countries. This is not really just an American message. This is a message about the body of Christ. When Jesus talked about the church, his favorite word to describe the church was flock. He referred to us as sheep. But he talked of a lot of symbols. He talked about the vineyard. He talked about vines. And he talked about branches. One time he said that we are one. We are one in Christ. We are one in him. He talked about us being a family. He, he used symbolism like this, that you are sons and daughters of God, that we're children. To me, that's my favorite term that he used about us. We have different things like fellowship at the table, taking communion together. Sometimes together we have talked about being in church is breaking bread together. And we know that we're talking about more than just having a meal. What I'm doing is breaking the bread of life this morning by preaching the Word of God. Jesus talks about leaders in the church. And one of the things about leaders in the church is they should constantly be raising up other leaders in the church. And to be a good leader, you've got to be a good follower. Good followers become good leaders, and naturally we grow in our leadership ability. I, I tell everybody, everybody, in some way, shape, or form, you're a leader. You may be the most uninfluential person in the world, but statistically speaking, you're going to have at least five other people that are going to follow you and being the most uninfluential person in the world. You're going to have that kind of impact upon their life. And I don't know about you, but I want to have the impact that we celebrate in our mission statement. Our mission statement at Woodland for 20-something years now has been celebrating God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Christ. And the joy we had as a team hammering that out, and there are pages and documents because although we tried to sum it up in that one statement, there's so much there of what that means. But People grasp it. People that don't even go to our church know that we're all about celebrating God's love and persuading people to become passionate followers of Jesus. Other churches have written us and said, can we use your mission statement? Can we use that at our church? And of course you can. You know, we felt like it just came right from the word. And so anybody's welcome to use it. But the one thing that we keep emphasizing over and over, no matter if we refer to ourselves as a family, Jesus refers to us as a nation, but we also remember that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Lord of the church. I am not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And so that's the one thing we continually remind ourselves of. We also remind ourselves that the church is not just those of us that are present worshiping the Lord here at Woodland today and other churches around the world. But the church is the people of God that have already gathered to him in heaven. People like my father, people like some of your relatives, maybe a wife or a brother or a sister or mother or father that has already gone to be with the Lord.
We've come now to a place that the Bible calls of Mount Zion, a kingdom where people are living together and working together, praying together. And the work of the church, this is important, the work of the church is so much more than digging wells. The work of the church is so much more than fighting sex trafficking. The work of the church is so much more than, than feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and educating people. That's important. But the work of the church is primarily to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to present Jesus as the Savior of the world, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That is the number one calling and mission of the church. Years ago, a man came to our church. He loved our services. He loved what we were doing. And then when he went through our membership class, and we were talking about the work of the church, and our number one priority was to reach lost people. He said, that's the number one priority of the church? And I said, yes. And he goes, I've never heard that in all my life. He says, we're responsible to share this with other people? And I, I go, absolutely, we're responsible to share what God has done for us and what Christ has done for us. And I will never forget him explaining to me how he grew up in church. He had been a leader in another church. He's, but no one has ever told me that this is what I'm supposed to do. And so finally, I ask him the question that I've asked so many people. Do you read your Bible? And he admitted, you know, no, I really don't read it. He said, I find it hard to understand. He said, I love God. I, I love the church. And that's the reason we use a modern translation like the New Living Translation. And sometimes you'll see me use the message translation, the contemporary English version, because I want people to understand. I love the King James. I read it frequently. There's nothing to beat its language, but we just don't talk like that anymore. And having said that, when you read the Bible, that you understand that God not only calls us to share our faith, this is important, God calls us to learn how to live free. He calls us how to learn how to live as free people. He says, if, if Christ has set us free, we are free indeed. What do you do with freedom? Do you remember the first time you drove a car all by yourself? Do you remember when you got your driver's license and you took off through the countryside, maybe, if you lived where I did, and I was driving through the pecan orchards, and I'll just tell you, I was hollering. I was so happy to be driving. There was a freedom that came from driving my car. There was a freedom to going to our McDonald's and parking alongside of my friends and having a root beer and hamburger and french fries and talking a freedom of gathering. There is a freedom that people have no idea that we have in Christ. And part of our responsibility is learning how to live free. And yet, living free contradicts most of the systems of this world. Most people in this world do not have the freedoms that you and I enjoy. I've been in those countries. I've worked in those countries. I've preached in those countries. I've preached in underground churches, in hidden cell groups where, you know, we took our lives in our hands because people didn't have the freedom to gather and worship like we do. That's why this statement that I'm going to read to you, to me, this is one of the most genius human paragraphs that has ever been written. Follow along with me. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union and establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility and provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States. And when I read that paragraph, 
I stand by my statement. It's one of the most remarkable paragraphs ever written. But I find myself praying today, Father, bring us back to the spiritual and the moral principles that gave us this paragraph. There are a lot of people trying to ensure order and domestic tranquility without embracing the moral principles and the spiritual principles and the faith in God that our founding fathers had. And so my question that is before us as a church today and before those of you on our online campuses is simply this. What will happen to the United States if we forget our root of faith? What will happen to us as a nation if we forget where we got these documents from and how we got these documents? We must be established in our faith. We must be firmly rooted in our faith. I love to give Becky fresh flowers. I love to see her face and Probably at least once a month, I bring home a fresh bouquet of flowers for her, and she'll take it, and she'll arrange them in a vase, and there's even one vase that I like more than the rest of them, because when I was preaching in Europe for several months, I found this porcelain vase, and I carried it like a baby everywhere I went, because I wanted it to make it home, and I wanted it to be special, and she'll pull that one out sometime, and she'll arrange the flowers, she'll clip the ends of them, she'll put in this little chemical that causes them to live a little bit longer, but we know because they're fresh flowers, and even though we enjoy the fragrance, even joy, we enjoy the color, we know they're destined for the trash can. We know that. And sometimes when she'll say, will you take these dead flowers out to the trash can for me? I'll think to myself, and this is the Scotch-Irish part of my ancestry, will rise up and say, that was such a waste of money. And then I will remember her smile, and I'll go do it all over again the next month, because I love to see that smile on her face. Here's the deal. The reason the flowers die is because they're cut off from the roots. And any flower that you cut off from the root, I'm assuming, is still going to retain its fragrance for a while. It's still going to retain its beauty for a while. It's still going to stand up nice and straight for a while. But eventually, because it's cut off from the root, it's going to die. And as a nation, I see us trying to preserve the beauty, trying to preserve the strength trying to preserve the order, trying to preserve the national tranquility of a nation, but we are forgetting the root. We're forgetting what gave us this constitution that we enjoy. We are witnessing today in America, and again, this is not just a message about America, but we're witnessing a national trashing, a national trashing of our spiritual and moral heritage that we've had. Friends, there is a difference from repenting of our sins. And America has her sins, just like every other nation of the world has her sins. America has its share of things to repent of. But when you repent of your sin and you turn to Christ, he forgives you of your sin and he washes them all away. My prayer for America is that we will recognize the incredible and unusual position that God has put us in as a nation and afforded to us by the Constitution of the United States, but remember the spiritual and the moral roots that got us here. I'm not worried about the church. The church will survive. 
We have witnessed more attacks by politicians and a friend of mine who's continued to have services and the community leaders and others protested outside of his church, said they were uncaring and they were unloving and all kinds of false things about them because they continue to have services. I am so grateful that in Brownstown, we were embraced for having services. We were thanked for having services. And although we worshiped outside for quite a long time, and there was a period of time that we, we just had online services only, we never experienced the kind of persecution that my friend did in another part of this country. But the church will always survive. Under the tyranny of the Soviet Union, the church thrived. Under the tyranny of communist China, the church survived and thrived. Under the tyranny of some dictators in Africa, where I preached at, people, the church is thriving. Understand this, no matter how hard the powers of hell try to stamp out the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church will always prevail against the gates of hell. Always prevail. So my concern... My concern is not about the church. My concern is for this country that we love. Look at these words. We the people of the United States. Where do we get those words from? They come from Genesis chapter 1. They come from the chapter that tells us that we have a sovereign God who created us. We have a God who put us in a perfect environment, on a perfect planet. We had a perfect relationship with a perfect God, and yet we rebelled against him. He had made us stewards over everything, and we literally governed the earth with God. We the people do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Can you imagine the revolutionary sound of those words? Can you imagine what was going through people's minds? Because at that time, a king was the sovereign. At that time, the king was the one. Or You were king because of who your parents were. You were born a king. You were born a queen. And you ascended to the throne. And everybody else was a commoner. You could have somebody executed. You could have somebody imprisoned. My home state was populated, not out of compassion from the king of England, but my home state was populated by people who could not pay their debts, and they were thrown into prison in England, and the king decided to use them as a buffer colony against the Spaniards in order to protect his tobacco plantations in the Carolinas. And yet when those people came to Georgia and they established themselves as a colony, they were still loyal to the king. They were still loyal to the one that had called them there. But as time went on and oppression increased, there was something happening in America. The sound of freedom, the preaching of the gospel was heard from the pulpit of the pulpits of churches in the United States. Men like George Whitfield began to travel the coastline of this country. And you can imagine the revolutionary sounds when people discovered what it meant to really live free in Christ and to serve God as your sovereign. When the Bible says these words, they are powerful words that should strike fear into the heart of anybody, any dictator or any sovereign at all. When I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him, and your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. God wants to empower you. God wants to make you strong. I was reading in the newspaper 
one of the funniest stories I've read in a while. Police in Fremont, California was driving a Tesla Model S patrol car. And he began to pursue somebody at 120 miles per hour. So finally, he, he called in because his car flashed a little sign up to him. It says, you only have six miles left on the battery. Can you imagine running out of power when you're trying to chase down a thief or a murderer? Can you imagine running out of power? And so the officer, he, he calls in and he says, I am down to six miles of battery on the Tesla, so I may lose it here in a second. God has not caused us to lose, but God has empowered us by his Holy Spirit. And revival doesn't begin with America. Revival begins with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what America needs more than anything is a healthy, healthy church. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, many of you in here probably know that name. Some of you online may not know that name at all. Solzhenitsyn was a Russian writer and a Russian poet and spent years in a Siberian prison. One of the men in the church just told me a few minutes ago, he, for Father's Day, received a copy of Solzhenitsyn's work. Solzhenitsyn was in prison for his, his writings in the Soviet Union. Later, he became a passionate follower of Christ, and that increased the persecution. They would beat him. They put him in Siberia, and finally, he had just taken all he could, and he fell down into a field, and he just said, they can beat me to death. I would rather die than to continue to live like this. And this co-laborer that was working with him, a slave in the same camp, reached over real quickly with a shovel and drew a cross in the sand and then quickly covered it up and helped Solzhenitsyn to his feet. Solzhenitsyn later wrote and said to him his entire being was energized by that little reminder of the hope and the courage that we have in Christ. He found the strength to continue because a fellow believer encouraged him and reminded him that Christ is our hope. Brothers and sisters, hear me this morning. Our hope has never been in America. We love our country. We love our nation. But our hope and our trust and our foundation has always been in Jesus Christ. And yet, we love America. We love our country as anyone should love their land of birth or the land they grew up in. I just finished a book this last week on modern-day Russia. And I marveled, even though all of the economic hardships and all the persecutions, it seems like all of Russia exists just to support Moscow, in my opinion. Even in all that, people still love their country. It's their government they don't hate. It's their government they hate. It's the tyranny that they hate. You see, when a government denies God, then a government denies that you were created in the image of God. And you and I have to uphold that we are created in the image of God himself. That human beings, life is sacred. The imagio Deo lives on in us. Listen to these words from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. What does that mean, self-evident? It means there's no debate about these truths. 
It means they're sacrosanct. There's no arguing about these. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That means these rights cannot be touched. These rights cannot be taken away. The government didn't give them to you. The king didn't give them to you. Society didn't give them to you. Even your parents didn't give them to you. God created us in his image and endowed us with certain inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are words from the Declaration of Independence that are rooted in the authority of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 says, God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. When I talk to these young couples before they get married, I remind them, And as I pray on the the day of their wedding, I pray and remind them one more time before the Lord that by myself, I don't represent the image of God. But Becky and I together represent the image of God. A man and a woman committed to one another in marriage represent the full image of God. Yes, the image of God is upon me as a man. It is upon you as a woman. But when we come together, God reveals himself in a certain way. It's the reason a home becomes sacred and the government is not allowed to trespass and take your home or put you out of your home so that an army may occupy it. These rights are anchored for us in the word of the Lord. The Constitution, excuse me, the Declaration goes on to say to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just power from the consent of the governed or the consent of the people. These are incredible revolutionary words. These are words almost as powerful as Mary's Magnificent, when she talks about how the mighty are humbled and the powerful are pulled off their thrones. You see, the government receives its power from the people, from the consent of the people. It doesn't matter if it's the national government or the federal government, or whether it's state government, or whether it's even our local government. They receive their power. But if you take God out, out of the equation, the whole thing will pancake and collapse. You cannot secure these kinds of rights for people. It's the reason that one of our chief justices says, this constitution, this republic will not work unless we are people of godly faith. We've got to come back to terms to that. I have grieved watching the news about the collapse of the condominium complex 12 stories high in Florida. Becky and I went to college in Florida. We've seen potholes. We've wondered about that. What happened? Now, we have many people in the church, several of them talking about it after the first service. They own condominiums in Florida, some right on the coast and on the beach. As we talked about this, I called an architectural firm and I said, tell me what you think might have happened. I know you can't say, but what might have happened? One was the rising seawater. Maybe it began to wash away because that particular location, they get it from the intercoastal canal and they get it from the ocean as well, so it gets hammered on both sides. Maybe the foundation was eroded. Maybe it was a pothole or it could have been faulty engineering or a faulty foundation. Whatever, I'm sure in time that we will know, but if the foundation collapses, the whole thing pancakes. Friends, there are no human rights unless, first of all, 
a nation recognizes God. Because a nation like China or a nation like Iran does not recognize your human rights because you exist for the government. You are the commoner. You exist for the people. It's the reason that dictators hate the preaching of the Bible. It's the reason that in places like China, where we support many missionaries and friends, they're under such heavy restrictions. Because when these words are read, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, these are rights that are ordained by God, not by government. So what do we do? We must, as a church, be what we celebrate in our mission statement. We must be passionate followers of Christ. After the first service, somebody came to me this morning. As I was praying with people, I said, I just want a word, Pastor. I heard what you said. I'm off my couch. I'm out of my pajamas, and I'm back in church. It's time to come back to church. It's time to bring your children back to church. It's time to gather to worship together. I know it's nice to be able to sit at home. When we go on our vacation this summer, I promise you we'll be in church somewhere because it's what we do as followers of Jesus. We gather to worship the Lord, and then we depart with the Word of God in our hearts to serve, hopefully wiser, hopefully encouraged and strengthened. But if we get disconnected from our roots, it's like the beautiful flowers that I gave Becky. For a while, they were beautiful, but then there comes a time when she says, will you take these to the trash? It's the reason that Moses warned the congregation of Israel. Listen to these words. They're chilling to me. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful. What is he doing? He's warning them about the dangers of success and prosperity. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with success. You cannot build a case against wealth and success in the Bible. If you follow Jesus... Eventually, you will begin to enjoy good success, as he promised Joshua. If you follow Jesus, eventually, you'll begin to prosper as you put God first in your life. This passage of Scripture reminds us that it is God who makes the creation of wealth possible. The problem comes when people replace God with wealth. The problem comes when people replace God with success. You say, Pastor, why would we do that? What draws us to do that? The same thing that called Lucifer to rebel against God and the same thing that caused Adam and Eve to rebel against God. It's pride and it's self-sufficiency. Lucifer created, the Bible seems to indicate, as the chief of angels, the one who led worship to the Lord, decided, I'm going to be greater than God. I will exalt my throne above the Lord, the Bible says. And Lucifer was cast out of heaven, and he took a third of the angels with him, leaving those demonic powers that we know today. And so Lucifer rebelled against God, and he was cast out. Secondly, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, as I referenced in the first part of this message. They were cast out. Moses is saying, and Moses himself would not go into the promised land. Moses was saying, beware, lest you become proud and self-sufficient. And there was a church that Jesus talked to. We call it the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 15. 
And Jesus said these words, since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What was the problem? The problem was the church was wealthy. The church was successful. They said of themselves, we are rich and increase with goods and need nothing, not even God. And God's diagnosis of this church was, you are pitiful, you are wretched, you are naked, and you are blind. Friends, hear me today. Christ says without him, we can do nothing. We are nothing without Christ. But I love the mercy that God showed to that Laodicean church. For he said to them, I stand at the door and I knock. I stand at the door. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. I stand at the door and knock. And if anybody will open the door, I will come in and I will have dinner with him. We will have fellowship together. God will heal us. And I believe this morning that God has been saying to some, I am standing at your door and knocking. I know in even writing this message, I had to fall on my knees and worship because the Lord was knocking at my door. And there are churches that the Lord is knocking at their door. And I believe this morning in America, across this land, that God is knocking on the door of churches. The key is not what America does. The key is what the church does. Will we let Jesus be the Lord of the church? Yes, we're a family. Yes, we are a flock. Yes, we are one in God. Yes, he is the vine and we are the branches. But Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of all the church. And that's what we have to embrace this morning. That's what gave our Constitution. That's what gave our Declaration of Independence such power. In closing, let me read you this quote from General MacArthur. This is the part of the speech of the surrender on the USS Missouri, and I want you to focus particularly on the last sentence in this. Military alliances, balances of power, leagues of nation all in turn have failed, leaving the only path to be by way of the crucible of war. We have had our last chance. If we do not now devise some greater and more equitable system Armageddon will be at our door. The problem basically, now listen, this, the problem basically is theological and involves a spiritual recrudescence and an improvement of human character that will synchronize with our almost matchless advances in science, art, literature, and all material and cultural developments of the past 2,000 years. It must be of the Spirit if we are to save the flesh. Listen to those words again. It must be of the Spirit if we are to save the flesh. It must be of the Spirit if we are to save the works of the flesh. So where did MacArthur get that from? From the book of Zechariah. For the Lord said, it is not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. I believe he's standing at the door and knocking. And he's saying to each of us, if you will open up, I will come in and you and I will dine together.
I'm asking you this morning to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. I'm asking you like someone in our first service this morning who came to me and said, I just want to put my faith, I want to put my trust in Christ. I want to believe on Him. Or maybe you like someone else that I prayed for to the first service who just wants to be revived. All you've got to do is get somewhere alone before the Lord and understand that we as the body of Christ, not through protest, not even through digging wells as important as that may be, not even through helping those who've been flooded out. Becky and I understand we had our whole home flooded in Georgia. We understand losing power and living in the heat and the humidity without any power and our all of everything lost. And as wonderful as it was for people who rallied around us and helped us, still the greatest thing in this world is when you can share your story of faith of what God has done in your life. So you join me and will you join these in the sanctuary and let's stand before the Lord together and pray. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we swing wide open the doors to you. Oh God, we swing wide open the doors of our heart, the doors of our families. Lord, our ministries. And Jesus, we swing open our own personal door. And as we sang as children, would you come in, Lord? Would you come in? Revive us, refresh us. Let the wind of your Holy Spirit blow through every corner of our life, taking away all the dead and the old. And may we be anchored and rooted in Christ and in his word so that we never lose our bloom so that we will always remain fruitful and so that we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, I pray. In Jesus' holy name. Now, while every head is still bowed, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, and I'm just going to ask you to pray this prayer with me today. This is the beginning. This is the first step. This is how you open your heart to Christ. Do you believe him? Do you believe that he died for your sins? If so, then ask him to come into your life. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. And if you will believe upon him and confess him with your life, with your mouth, with your words, and everything you do, the Bible says you will be saved. I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm not trying to recruit you to my own personal movement. I want you to know Jesus. And Jesus will make himself real to you. So pray like this. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for giving Jesus Christ your only begotten Son to take my sins upon himself for punishing my sins in Christ. I believe in that. I trust that. 
And I want to grow in faith. I want my roots to grow into you. So as much as I know how, I ask you to forgive me and come into my heart and be my Lord, be my boss, my master. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. If I can help you in any way, all you've got to do is email me at info at woodland.church, and I'll be happy to help you and help you get started in your new life with Christ. God bless you. Thank you for watching. Thank you so much for being here today. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his wonderful face shine upon you and make you successful and prosperous in everything you do. Have a great Sunday afternoon. God bless. If you need prayer, I'll be glad to pray with you down here at the front or Pastor Corey 1.